Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, good morning. As you've uh, seen and heard, it is uh, the day that we recognize our seniors, uh, both those graduating high school and college, and we will be doing that uh, in the second service. Our seniors have have missed out on a lot this year. In fact, uh, many of us have missed out on various things. I'm supposed to be in Greece right now uh, with 35 or so people from this church, but as you can see, I'm not. And so uh, a lot of us have missed out on things we had planned, and certainly that is true of the seniors. Uh, Many of them did not have a senior prom this year, one of those rites of passage that is always uh, remembered. Uh, Their graduation ceremonies, at least here in Knox County Public Schools, have been pushed off into the summer in June outdoors. Yeah, won't that be fun? (laughs) June in a football stadium for graduation. Uh, Luckily, only four people can come, which means I don't have to go to any of those and sit out there. They missed out on Senior Skip Day. Do they still have that? Well, they didn't miss out on it, actually. They got a lot more of them. We didn't have Senior Skip Day when I was in school. I can talk about this now because school is out, and our students won't remember I said this next fall. We didn't have Senior Skip Day. We just skipped whenever we wanted to. And we had a certain number that we were allowed, and I knew what that number was my senior year. And I took advantage of every one of them. Now, I was a good student, and I knew when I could skip and when I couldn't. And the teachers let me get away with it because they knew I was a good student. In fact, I well remember one teacher in particular who, when he was signing my form that said, please excuse Alan from school yesterday because he was sick, written by me, of course, As he was signing his name on it, he was asking me what I caught the day before because he knew me and a buddy of mine had skipped school together to go fishing, and he wanted to know how they were biting. And so I I skipped occasionally, but I never skipped a review day. If I knew the teacher was going to do a review of an upcoming test, I would never miss that day because I figured the teacher either wrote the test herself or certainly knew what was on the test. And so during a review class, he or she was going to tell me pretty much what was going to be on that test. And so if I listened carefully during the review, then I was bound to be more prepared for that test, and I probably wouldn't have to study all of the other stuff that I thought might be on there because that teacher was giving me a heads up about what it was that was most important. Now this morning, we are back in our letter of 1 John, and John is reviewing for us. And as you've seen already, John is somewhat repetitive, and we've talked about that really from day one, but the fact is we must need it, which is why he is giving it to us. Now you remember that John's emphasis, his main point, we don't find it until chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He is trying to give us assurance that we really do have eternal life. 
And so he is setting up a series of tests or evidences that we can examine our lives by to see whether or not we do have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, one of two things can happen with these examinations, with these evidences. We can be reassured. That is, we can get the assurance of salvation that we need. Or we can decide that maybe we're not genuinely saved and we can be convicted by the Holy Spirit of God and then we can accept salvation in Jesus Christ or obviously you can reject it as well. But that's John's motivation. That is what he is trying to accomplish. He is trying to assure us that we are in fact children of God. Now certainly we live in a day where we want assurances, right? I mean, even as we are starting to open back up as a society, we want assurances that this isn't all going to happen again. We're wondering, is this going to take place again in the fall when uh, the kids go back to school? Can you give us some assurance that as we start going about our daily life again, that this virus won't flare up? Well, I can't give you that assurance, but I can give you a better assurance. I can give you an assurance about salvation in Jesus Christ from the words of John, particularly in chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. In fact, I'm calling this Blessed Assurance. You know that old song that has that as its title or tagline? John is going to give us some blessed assurance so that we can know for sure that we are a child of God. 1 John chapter 4 and I'll begin reading in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does not love, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother." Now again, if you've been with us throughout this series, you've probably already noticed that there's really nothing new in these verses. There is nothing that we have not seen before, nothing that we've not talked about before, and yet John is bringing them all together again, I think for one reason among others, and that is the tendency we might have to look at these things in, in part, but not in whole. And so we might say to ourselves, well, yeah, I'm good at... I'm good at loving my brother, but I'm not really walking in the light. But as long as I'm doing one, the other doesn't really matter. Or I've got the doctrine part down right. I know what I believe. It doesn't really matter how I live. And so he's pulling all of these together in one place here to show us the totality of what it means to walk and live in Christ 
and to have that assurance along the way. And so I got just two points this morning. The first one is this, assurance of mutual abiding. John is gonna give us some things to think about as we talk about this mutual abiding. And obviously that's a word we've heard over and over again, abide, or some of your translations may use the word remain. It's one of John's favorites, both here and in his gospel. In fact, you'll notice it three times in the first couple of verses there. Look back at our text again. By this we know we abide in him and he in us. Mutual abiding. We in him, he in us. Verse 14, the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son, God abides in him and he in God. There it is again. And then verse 16, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. Over and over again in this book, we're talking about this mutual abiding, how God abides in us and we abide in God. So how then do we know this? And what does it do for us? Well, how do we know that we are abiding in God and He in us? Well, number one, we have the assurance through possessing the Spirit of God. John has already talked about this somewhat. He brought it up back in chapter 3. And verse, uh, one of the verses there said that uh, the, the idea of the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And then if you remember chapter 4, he opens up by saying, but test the spirits. That is to see whether or not it is genuinely the Spirit of God that is living within you. So we talked about discernment when we looked at that particular text. And now he's coming back to that idea of the Spirit indwelling us, being within the believer, as an assurance that we are mutually abiding in Christ. If you and I possess the Spirit of God, then we have this mutual abiding. Well, we really haven't talked about the nuts and bolts about how we can know that we have the Spirit of God. We talked about it a little bit. We said it, it can, we can think we have it, but we could actually be wrong. So I want to take a few moments now to, to think about how we can know for certain, how can we have that assurance that we possess the Spirit of God. There's basically three ways. Number one is that inner witness. This is the most subjective of all of the three. And because it's the most subjective, it is the one that can be deceptive. That is, we can think we have the inner witness and it might be something different. And so this one cannot be divorced from the other two but it is there because the scripture tells us this. Paul says in Romans, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there is this inner testimony, this inner witness that testifies to ourselves that we do in fact have the spirit of God. And while that is important, it must be added on to. And so the second way we know that we possess the spirit is through the fruit of the Spirit. That is, we ought to be able to look at our lives and see that the Spirit within us is producing fruit. John Calvin said, it is not enough for people to claim that the Spirit of God dwells in their heart, for if he does, he is not idle. His presence will reveal itself. That is, if the Spirit of God is within us, he doesn't just lay dormant, he does something. He produces fruit in our lives. We think here of Paul's uh, list in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is. 
And I'll probably miss one, so I'm not going to name them. But go there this afternoon, look at that list that Paul gives, and see if your life is listed there. That is, do you have these things evident in your life? And it's not just that list. I mean, we can expound on that and say, in general terms, the fruit of the Spirit is a growing desire to know and be obedient to Christ. That is, Jesus said the Spirit comes to point people to Jesus. So if the Spirit is in your life and mine, and if He is active in producing fruit, then there is going to be a growing desire to know more about God and to follow Him more faithfully. And so how do I know I possess the Spirit? Well, there's that internal witness, and then there is the fruit of the Spirit, and thirdly, there are the gifts of the Spirit. Now, there are some who would say that this is so essential that if you don't have a particular gift of the Spirit, then you don't have the Spirit of all. And you think, I think you know what I'm talking about. There are some charismatic churches and denominations that will say, if you do not have the ability to speak in tongues, then you do not possess the Spirit. And you need to ask for the Spirit. You need to seek the Spirit. That is not what we believe. We believe the Bible teaches that every believer is given gifts of the Spirit once we are saved. There is not one that you must have. There is a grouping or a list of gifts. There are multiple lists in the New Testament. And every believer is gifted. We're gifted differently. Yours is different than mine and vice versa. But all of us have gifts to be used in the service of the Lord for the benefit of his church and his people. So using these gifts in his service is evidence that God lives and resides within me and within you. Now remember, the gift of the Spirit is himself a gift. That is, the Holy Spirit of God is a gift. God sent the Son to die for us. God sent the Spirit to live within us. And both of those are gifts of grace. It is not something that we must seek after or earn. They are simply given by the grace of God. So the assurance that we find here of mutual abiding is that we possess the Spirit. Secondly, we move on to see that we also then confess the Son. In verse 14, John bears witness to the reality and the historicity of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, he says very plainly that acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God is evidence of mutual abiding. That is, if you are abiding in Christ and he is abiding in you, then you will confess that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to be the Savior of the world. Now you say, well, that's easy. I mean, I can repeat that. I can say that. That's not a problem. Well, I think we've already seen in this letter, and we're reminded again today, that merely saying something is not what John has in mind here. There is significance beyond merely repeating some sort of phrase or doctrinal statement. The article is there in both the original and in many of our English translations, that he is the Son of God. That is a statement that he is not one among many. There are not other options. He is the one and only one who has come to be the Savior. And therefore, we must make that confession and believe it. We've already talked about the fact that Jesus is Lord. And elsewhere, the Bible tells us you cannot say that except by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Though that, of course, does not mean that an unbeliever cannot mockingly call Jesus Lord or even be deceived themselves and think they're doing it seriously. I remind you that Jesus himself said on one occasion, why do you call me Lord and do not keep my commandments? So it is possible to say the words. It is possible to repeat the confession without that being an assurance that you are mutually abiding with Christ. It has to go beyond a mere repetition of the words. So when John here says that this is evidence of mutual abiding, it is implied that it is not just a statement, but it involves obedience to the Son. You remember that scene at the cross after Jesus has died? Immediately after he's died, the centurion there said, truly this was the Son of God. And we don't think he's making just a statement there, right? I mean, you can hear that something has drastically impacted him, that what he has seen has made a difference, and he says, this really is the Son of God. And that's what we're talking about here as well. Now, what does it mean that he's the Savior of the world? Is that universalism? Does that mean everybody is going to be saved? Or does it mean that God wanted to save everyone, but somehow he was unable? doesn't mean either one of those two things. There's only one other place where that phrase, Savior of the world, is found. Now, the idea is found elsewhere, but I mean that exact phrase is only found in one other place. And that other place is in John's gospel, in the story of the woman at the well. And, and there, it's an issue of Jesus is not just the Savior for the Jews, but he's a Savior for the Samaritans as well. That is, it goes beyond a, a class of people and he has come for all. Now, that's not the issue here. The issue in 1 John is not, did Jesus come for Jews and Samaritans or Jews and Gentiles? The issue in 1 John is that those who have left the church are not acknowledging that Jesus has come at all. You remember, we've already talked about how they were doubting the incarnation. Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. And if they were doubting the incarnation, they were denying the atonement. If he didn't come in the flesh, then he didn't die for our sins. So John is emphasizing once again that Jesus did in fact really come and did in fact really die as our Savior. And so we possess the Spirit and then we confess the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. The third assurance we find here of mutual abiding is that we know the love of God. Verse 19 God is love. This is, the, this is the high water mark of this letter. It's already been said in verse 8, and now it is said again in verse 9. This simple and yet profound statement, God is love. Now, we all need to hear that we're loved, right? I have yet to meet a woman who's come to me and says, Pastor, the problem in my marriage is my husband says I love you too much. I've never heard that. We men are usually the opposite. That is, we, we don't say it enough. We, we say we said it at the wedding, and that's, that's good enough. Until something changes, there's no need to repeat myself. But there's never been a woman who says, he says it too much. We need reassurance, and that is what John is giving us, telling us yet again that God is love. In fact, he goes on to say that we love because he first loved us. 
Did you know that was the, the theme verse of the student ministry throughout Scott's tenure as student pastor here? That was, that was the verse that, that he used throughout his ministry. We love because he first loved us. You see, we were spiritually blind until the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. Our hearts were cold. Our hearts were hard, just like that of Pharaoh, until God came in and opened up our hearts, filling us with love for God and love for one another, giving us clear evidence then that God loves us. So we have the assurance of mutual abiding. That is, we possess the Spirit. We confess the Son, and we know the love of God. Do you see the, the Trinity there? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in part here, all in play here when it comes to our salvation and our assurance. Well, let's move on to our second assurance, and that is the assurance of complete love. Now, again, we talked about this briefly uh, two weeks ago when we, when we dealt with this. But he opens it up again in verse 17. By this we know, uh, by this is love perfected with us. Now again, John's not talking about it perfect. When he uses the word perfect, it doesn't mean perfection. Uh, I wanted to change it to complete, but the text uses the word perfect in most translations. But it doesn't mean perfect as in the sense of never having a fault. Our love is not like that, is it? I mean, we, we do not love completely. We do not love perfectly. There is not a marriage where love is perfect. There is not a parent-child relationship where that is the case. Our love falls woefully short of that. So he doesn't mean perfect in the sense of never having a problem. I know like you, I, I've probably watched more TV during, uh, during these days. So one of the things I stumbled across uh, about a week or so ago was, a, was an hour-long stand-up comedy show from Jerry Seinfeld. You, you remember Jerry Seinfeld, right? Uh, it, was, it was a stand-up routine he did, uh, obviously, before all this because there was a crowd. Uh, and, and so I watched it. In part of that uh, show, he gave a definition of marriage. Here's his definition. I'm not saying it's mine. I'm saying this is his definition of marriage. Marriage is... Two people living together, trying not to say, I hate you. <laughs> now, he went on to say, you can think it, but you just can't say it. So we all know that our love for anybody else and our love for God is not perfect. So John's not talking about that. So what is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the kind of love that God has for us. We are assured that we have this love. And when we do have that, then we can have confidence concerning judgment. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that, that is, here's the result, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Now, the day of judgment speaks about that which is certain, and settled, that is, there is coming a day. I know we don't like to think about it. I know we'd rather not talk about it. But there is coming a day when all will be judged, when we will stand before God and uh, give an account. And the Bible speaks about that. Whether we like to talk about it or not, the Bible talks about it. In fact, did you know that, that there are 14 instances in the New Testament, at least in my translation, again, yours might differ a little bit, 14 instances of the word hell in the New Testament. 12 of them, 
12 of the 14 spoken by Jesus. There's two that are outside the Gospels. One is in James and one is in 2 Peter. The other 12 are all in the Gospels and all from the lips of Jesus. So Jesus talked about judgment. Those who claim he is merely a God of love, those who claim that judgment is not part of the Bible, are simply not listening to Jesus nor the rest of the New Testament. But here John says that when we have this love, we, we can have confidence when it comes to the judgment. The word confidence is used in this letter four times. Twice it's used concerning the arena of prayer, and the other two times are about future confidence. We've already seen it in chapter 2 and verse 28 when John says, For when he appears, we may be confident. It's a word that's used 29 times throughout the whole Bible, and uh, 13 of those are by John in the gospel and here. It originally meant to, be right, to, to have the right or courage to, to appear in public. In fact, it's actually translated publicly on a few occasions. On several occasions in the gospels where it's talking about someone boldly preaching publicly, that's the same word that we find here. You remember the story in the book of Acts? where the disciples were told uh, not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they went away from there and did it anyway. And they were rejoicing that they had the, the confidence to speak boldly, publicly. That's the same word that we find here. Now understand that we don't have confidence to stand in judgment because of what we do. This is not about you living your best life so that one day you can stand before God and say, I tried my best. That's not the confidence that we're talking about. That's not going to help you in the time of judgment. The confidence that we have concerning judgment is a confidence that comes from God's love for us. When we know that we are right with him and that he loves us, we can then have confidence uh, before him. Secondly, we notice not only confidence concerning judgment, but there is a comparison here concerning Jesus. I know that that seems rather blasphemous to even say, right? That somehow we're compared to Jesus. But look at the second half of verse 17. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. Now, what does that mean? That, that, I'll admit that's a difficult phrase to fully understand. As he is, so we are in this world. Now, the word world, we, we've seen this before. It's used different ways. This is not the evil world system here as has been used previously, as in do not love the world. So when we, when we did that text, we said the world there means this evil system that we live in. That, that is not the way it's used here. Here it is used simply as, as this place versus the heavenly place. That is, there's, there's two worlds, this one and the next. And so here the words just used talking about the world that we live in right now. So what does it mean that as we are so was he. What kind of comparison are we talking about? Well, certainly we are not comparing ourselves to Jesus in the arena of sin. We are sinners. He was sinless. We aren't even talking about the fact that uh, there is a comparison between our love, because as we've just mentioned, our love falls far short of his. So what in the world are we talking about here when we're talking about this comparison? I think he's talking about our position before God. That is, our position before God is similar to Jesus's because we are in Him. 
Remember, this is mutual abiding. And because I am in Christ and Christ is in me, God sees me in the very same way in many respects as he sees his son. So that when he sees me, he sees Christ. And so there is a comparison here concerning Jesus that also gives us this assurance. And then we see a casting out concerning fear in verse 18. John says, perfect love casts out fear. Now, here's where I mentioned last week that there seems to be a contradiction. There's not, but there seems to be. Because last week we looked at the Proverbs 31 woman, and we said there, the text said, as it says in many other places, that here's a woman who fears the Lord. And we mentioned several other Proverbs where it says the beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. So how can the Bible in one case say fearing the Lord is not only good, it's essential. Whereas in another place, as in here, it says perfect love casts out fear. Well, there certainly are differences when it comes to the word fear. That is, there are different uses of the word. Fear can mean a holy respect or reverence. And that is the way it's used a lot of times when it is referencing God. That is, we ought to have a, a certain reverence for God, and the word fear there is used. So it's not talking about a, a dread, but here it is. Because if you're facing judgment, you, you ought to fear God. There ought to be a dread. But that's the kind of fear that's cast out with love. It's a specific kind of fear that is cast out. And John says it is fear that is based on punishment. Again, we're, we're, we're hearing a lot about fear, right? Fear of catching the virus, fear of the virus coming back. And so in many ways, we are living our lives in fear. But when we have the confidence that we are in Christ, we have the assurance of mutual abiding and the assurance of complete love, it casts out, it drives out fear, specifically the fear of punishment, the fear of judgment. Because I no longer have to fear that God is going to punish me when the judgment comes because he's already dealt with my sin in Christ. You see, fear, uh, this bad kind of fear, and love cannot coexist. I'm not going to dread God as long as I love God. And as long as I understand God's love for me and I love him in return, I can have confidence in judgment because fear is cast out. Desiring God and dreading God cannot coexist. One drives out the other. Now, it is possible in our world to have love and fear at the same time. In other words, I, I, can, I can love someone, back in my younger days before marriage, I could, I could say that I love someone, and yet I'm afraid that they're not going to love me back, right? I'm, a, I'm afraid of rejection because they might not express that same love for me. But we don't have that fear because God has already expressed his love. Number one, he stated it, God is love, and we love because he first loved us. And then two weeks ago, we said, not only has he stated it, but he's shown it by sending his son to die in our place. So perfect love casts out fear. We do not have to fear uh, judgment. We do not have to fear punishment. Uh, let, me, let me try to help with, with an example here. As long as I'm a loving person, that is, if my life is, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the most loving, but as long as I'm a loving person, I don't, I don't fear the consequences for murdering someone. 
right? I mean, that, that never comes up. Because I'm, I'm basically a loving person. I don't, uh, I don't desire to kill people. And because I don't desire to kill people, I don't really worry about the punishment for murder. Now, if I start allowing bitterness and hatred to dwell in my heart, and if I begin to think about what life would be like if so-and-so were gone, that's when I need to start fearing the consequences for my actions. That's when I need to start thinking about, well, what's going to happen to me if I murder someone? But if I'm loving, those things never cross my mind. There's no fear of the consequences. And that's essentially what John is saying here. Because we have love, complete love, again, not perfect, but, but perfected in Christ, we do not have fear of punishment. All of that is cast out. And then finally, we notice a command concerning others. Love the brothers. I mean, how many times is John going to say this, right? Evidently, we still struggle with it because over and over again, he keeps saying it. If you love God whom you have not seen, then you also must love your brothers or sisters whom you have seen. It's a logical argument. In fact, it's a flawless logical argument. That is, if you're claiming to do the thing that's harder, it's harder to love someone you haven't seen. So if you're claiming to love God whom you have not seen, that's the hard part. And yet you cannot love your brothers and sisters who you can see. That's the easier part by comparison. Then you don't do the hard one either. These two things go together. You know, when you go to a wedding, you normally hear, in many cases, the, the pastor quoting from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In fact, can I just say it? I mean, another benefit of this pandemic is we don't have to go to weddings, right? <laughs> Wait, did I just say that? So you haven't heard it this summer because, or this spring and summer because you're not able to go to weddings. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And what that means is because God has put together the union of marriage, it was his idea and his institution, therefore we don't have a right to separate it. Well, John's saying the same thing here between loving God and loving others. We do not have the right to separate those two things because God is the one who put them together. And so he says repeatedly, if you love God, then there is this command to love others as well. I'm sure you've experienced or maybe know somebody who, um, who claims deeply to love God, and yet there doesn't seem to be much love in their heart for others. And that's exactly the kind of thing John, John is arguing against here, that these two things go together. If you can't love his creatures, then you cannot love the Creator himself. Another thing I've done throughout these uh, weeks and months is I, I've read more than normal. And I've read... Um, I've read not just Christian books, though I have, I've read some novels. I, one of the guys I like to read is John Grisham. I've read, I think, just about all of his books, and I've read two of them uh, during, this, uh, during these months. I'm awaiting uh, my father to finish the new one, so he'll send me the book and I don't have to buy it. But in one of his books entitled The Painted House, John Grisham talks about a Sunday school teacher who is eulogizing a mean character named Jerry Sisko. Jerry Sisko had been killed the night before when he had picked on someone uh, that he shouldn't have. This was his habit, but this time it caught up with him. And so in the words of this little boy who is at the funeral, listening to a Sunday school teacher eulogize um, 
Jerry Sisko, the little boy with his friend Dwayne says, she made Jerry sound like a Christian and an innocent victim. I glanced at Dwayne who had one eye on me. There was something odd about this. As Baptists, we'd been taught from the cradle that the only way you made it to heaven was by believing in Jesus and trying to follow his example in living a clean and moral Christian life. Now, I have a few issues there with the way he words that. Uh, No one's claiming John Grisham is a theologian. I'm just reciting what he said. Believing in Jesus and trying to follow his example and living a clean and moral Christian life. And anyone who did not accept Jesus and live a Christian life simply went to hell. And that's where Jerry Sisko was. And we all knew it. You've probably been to funerals like that, right? Where you're scratching your head going, is that guy talking about the same guy I knew? Because at funerals, we try to make everybody sound like saints. Sometimes we know that's just not the case. People claim to live a Christian life. They claim to follow Christ, but their life does not back that up. And what John is telling us here repeatedly is that a profession of faith must be practiced if it's a genuine profession. It's really that simple. And over and over again and in different ways, he's saying the same thing. That if we claim to know God then there are some other things that are going to be evident in our lives. And if those things are evident, we can have assurance. Again, that's not, we're not saved because of it, but it gives us assurance. We can have assurance of mutual abiding. God in me and I in Him. We can have assurance of complete love. Not perfect in the way that we normally use the word, but complete Because he loved us, we love him. And so again, as I said at the outset, there's one of two options here. As we've been going through this, our desire has not been to look at someone else's life. Our desire has been to look at ours. And looking at our life then, do we see these things? If we do, then we have assurance that we we are right with God. If we don't, then I pray the Holy Spirit of God will convict you of that truth and lead you to repent and trust in Him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we've had to be here this morning to dive into your word as given by your spirit to the Apostle John for our assurance. Lord, I pray that we would be able to walk out of here today with blessed assurance, knowing that Jesus is ours. But I pray for those who may not have that assurance that you would, you would help them to wrestle with that. That they wouldn't just walk away and forget it, but they would genuinely wrestle with their walk with you to see if there are marks, evidences of true Christianity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.